tattooed by Alabama. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back, everybody. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, or most likely you're watching if you're joining us on Facebook or YouTube. This is Alabama's only union talk radio show, and we are now in overtime, and we have some more great best of clips. We are delving into some of the major, some of the big stories that we covered in 2023, specifically the two biggest ones, the Teamsters and their their negotiations with the UPS and then the UAW and their negotiations with the big three automakers. So we pulled together some of the clips that we felt were the most representative of those particular stories and they'll give you the broadest gist of how everything played out. And once again, folks, I, I, you can trust me. This is a face that you can't see, but you can trust it. If you saw it, you would say that there is a face I can trust. When I say that this next round of videos, UPS and the Teamsters, UAW and the big three that will wrap up the show and there will be absolutely zero, absolutely nothing more following this next round of videos. You can absolutely trust, trust this face behind the microphone. You can hear it. You can hear my face and how trustworthy it is. There will absolutely be nothing else. So definitely do not stick around. The Teamsters voted to strike uh, by 97% nationally. 97% of the folks who voted voted to authorize a strike. Uh, this is really huge news. And this is where I want to solicit phone calls from Teamsters. I saw Will in the chat. I know that Jose uh, typically listens. And uh, I know that we do have a Teamster for UPS, at least one that I know of here in Huntsville that listens pretty regularly. Not going to be able to take calls during the main show. But uh, at 11 o'clock, which is only now 25 minutes away, we will be able to take calls. And so, you know, uh, get ready for that if you can, if you have time, and if you'd be interested. Would love to hear from some UPSers during this show. Um, So the phone number so that you can go ahead and have it is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just a reminder, we can't take calls during the main show, show this morning because of the issues with the FM feed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I know we, we did just have a caller I just saw uh, okay. get off the get off the air. Um, so I apologize, caller, to, to whoever that was. Uh, yeah, but call back. And, and yeah, you can call back, call back uh, after 11 um, and we'll get you on the air. But, yeah, sorry about that. You, you wouldn't have been able to uh, be, be heard on the FM radio so it would just been dead air yeah 
So, uh, yeah, the Teamsters voted to strike by 97% nationally. Some locals had an even higher strike percentage. Uh, the leadership of the union has been campaigning for a strike authorization vote. Sean O'Brien urged people to vote to, to authorize them to strike. And, so the, and, and just so people understand, a strike authorization vote is not necessarily a vote to strike. It is a vote to authorize the bargaining team to call a strike. It's basically giving that power to the bargaining committee. Um, and, and so, but, uh, uh, but that means that, that the membership has given them the authority to call a strike and the leadership of the union has made it very clear that come July 31st, which is the expiration of the contract, there will be no extension. And if they don't have a contract in place, uh, that they will be striking on August the 1st. So, they, they've been very clear about that, although I, I will just say, um, you know, talking about the Teamsters and Sean O'Brien being very clear about stuff, they were also very clear about uh, refusing to begin national negotiations until regional negotiations had concluded, uh, which they did not do. Um, they, have begun re uh, they have begun national contract negotiations, and... To my understanding, they have still not wrapped up all the regional negotiations. I think that the reason that they said that they started national negotiations, even though they haven't finished regional negotiations, is that they're like substantially complete. They're like really basic. That you know, they're saying that they're really most of the way there. That they're just kind of ironing out some kinks. Um, but I was kind of disappointed to see that kind of backtracking. But you know, I, I don't know. Uh, may, hopefully, he knows what he's doing, Sean O'Brien, and and the bargaining team there. And we'll see if he is as strong on the commitment to strike on August first. Uh, we'll see what happens there. But um, it would definitely be a very big deal if they if they do go on strike August first, which is only in six weeks now. Um, and one of the things that I want to do here in the next couple of weeks is get on the leadership of our local Teamsters Union to talk about what the effect would be locally here in Huntsville of a UPS strike. Uh, but, you know, uh, just speaking nationally, it would mean 350,000 workers going on strike. That would be the biggest strike in the country since the middle of the last century. It would be the biggest strike against a single employer in the history of the country, which is really wild. Um, UPS transports 6% of GDP daily, um, which is, a you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money moving around, a lot of capital moving around um, that they're, <coughs> that, that, you know, UPS's investors and their customers are really not going to be happy if that doesn't happen. And so, you know, I want to uh, address something that is, that, that a lot of people will say, and that's that, you know, these people, they make good money. They make good money. Why are they going to strike? And, you know, just to just like I'm not stupid and I don't want to be um, I, I don't want to advocate for the Teamsters from a position of dishonesty or anything or for the um, advocate for the UPS employees from a from a position of dishonesty or or kind of. Um, obfuscating the reality and the reality is that there are some people that work for ups who make really good money my uncle who was the chief steward of the teamsters in huntsville uh for ups back in the 90s and early 2000s he retired in like 2002 making 32 dollars an hour as a mechanic right uh no college degree or anything like that um and 32 dollars an hour in 2002 is pretty different than $32 an hour today, right? Um, 
Also, you know, the conditions at UPS have changed since 2000. They are a little bit worse, but there are still people who like, you know, if you're a full-time driver for UPS, after four years, you're making like 40 bucks an hour uh, in Huntsville. I can't remember. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at the contract, but the contract is public information. If you want to see what UPS drivers in your area are making, the full-time ones, you can look it up. Um, it's all really, it's all really pretty, uh, pretty out in the open. And so that is, that's good, and I'm happy for them. And their insurance is really good. Their retirement is really good. Um, and, and this is for the full time, full time drivers. And I'm going to talk about, you know, how many people are not that. But you know, while we're just focusing on these full time drivers, uh, you know, there there is a, a a degree to which they have it really good. But I would say. To even if it, even if all the employees at UPS were taken care of as well as the full-time drivers, I would still support them striking to get more. Why would I do that? Because look at the other side. In 2022, UPS made 13.9, 13 point something billion, billion dollars in profit, in profit. And just to remind people what profit is, <laughs> right? Profit is revenue minus expenses. So, you know, they're getting some tens, dozens of billions of dollars in revenue, but they don't take all of that home, quote unquote, right? A lot of that goes to paying labor costs. A lot of, of it goes to capital improvements, to repairing trucks, to buying new trucks, to uh, uh, facility upkeep, building new warehouses, you know, all this stuff. There's a lot of money that goes into keeping up UPS, right? But, uh, uh, but, Profit is what you have left over after you've paid for everything. So $13.9 billion in profit. And uh, that is a lot of profit. That's a lot, uh, a lot to go around. And the executive pay has been increasing while in real dollars, the pay of the drivers, even the ones that are well off, is decreasing. And so I think I would support them going on strike to get more of the value that they create. And this is the thing, right? Why? Because if that was the case and all these UPSers were making $30, $40 an hour, the entire conversation would be about, oh, they're so greedy, these greedy union workers. And it's never, ever about, look at this CEO making millions, tens of millions of dollars. They're greedy. Why is it that they're not giving up some of the money that they have to keep the machinery of UPS running, of, of whatever company running? It's always about the workers and never about the company. Because if the company gave the workers what they wanted, what they needed, gave up more of the value that the workers create, workers would never strike, right? So, uh, you know, I, just from a fundamental principle of fairness, I think it is crazy to suggest that the UPSers should not strike and should not get more of the value that they create, okay? But... That is the position of full-time UPS drivers is not the position of many people working at UPS. In fact, most people at UPS now don't make that. They're not in the same position as the full-time drivers. This is from Jacobin and Labor Notes, who co-published an article about the 97% strike vote, vote authorization. 60% of the workforce now is part-time 
making around the minimum wage in many regions of the country. 60% of the workforce is part-time. A lot of these people literally making near the minimum wage. Okay, So we're, in fact, not talking about a workforce full of people making $30, $40 an hour. In fact, we're talking about a workforce that is majority low to middle, you know, low to low middle wage workers. So don't allow people to confuse you when they throw out these stats about full-time drivers, because that's not the reality that most UPS workers face. Drivers in many locations are forced to work six days a week. They're forced to work. It's not, man, it's not voluntary. They have to work up to six days a week and up to 14 hours a day. Managers follow drivers in personal vehicles and relentlessly harass workers to scare them into working faster. In 2018, former Teamsters president James Hoffa forced a contract on members despite a majority voting against the contract. So back in 2018, a majority of UPS Teamsters said, no, we don't like this contract. But because of some old provision in the Constitution of the Teamsters, you could not... Uh, the the executive board was authorized to impose a contract on a workforce if they did not vote more than 60% against it. So, you know, so they, they voted, uh, uh, they, the, the, the executive board imposed this contract on them. And that contract kept part-time wages low and established a new second tier 22-4 driver position. That it, it, and the 22-4 position is named that way because of the section in the contract that establishes that position. Um, continuing from the Jacobin article, which resulted that resulted in new drivers making less money than existing drivers, despite doing the exact same work. It also gave these this new second tier of drivers fewer overtime protections. So that is kind of the reality that a lot of UPS workers are, are facing right now. Uh, and so the uh, so what are they asking for in these contract negotiations? UPS Teamsters are demanding a significant pay increase for part timers to twenty five dollars an hour. They are demanding an elimination of the second tier wages for package car drivers. They're saying we should all be on the same wage scale. They are saying uh, that they're demanding an end to a forced sixth day of work. They are demanding raising pension payouts for 60,000 workers so that they're more equal across the country. They're demanding no driver-facing cameras. They want more holidays and an end to subcontracting and the use of gig workers. Because that's another issue is that some of the work now that UPS is doing is not even being done by UPS workers. It's being subcontracted out to people who, who pay less. And so the, the union at UPS wants to bring this labor in-house, which makes, which makes a lot of sense. And these are all, these are all eminently doable and reasonable demands from the, from the union, from these workers. Uh, so let's look at the other side. What does Wall Street want from this UPS contract? And it's important to understand what Wall Street wants because 60% of UPS is owned by uh, uh, private equity firms. And the majority of those stocks are owned by BlackRock and Vanguard. So really, you know, the most parasitic of vampiric organizations on the face of the planet.
So what does Wall Street want out of the UPS contract? They want steady and massive profits, and they want more. From their perspective, UPS is one of the great success stories of the pandemic. From 2012 to 2019, UPS yearly profits ranged from seven to eight billion dollars. In 2020, when the rest of the economy was suffering from the pandemic, UPS made over $8.7 billion in profits, more than they had in the last decade. In the years since, they have reported the largest profits in its history, $13.1 billion in 2021 and $13.9 billion in 2022. So. Wall Street wants to further increase these profits in 2023 by asking for flexibility to schedule employees to work any of the seven days in a week. They want installation of driver-facing cameras to harass workers, and they want to continue and expand the use of subcontracting and gig workers. And so, I mean, just imagine, you're coming off, you have made more money than ever in the history of your organization and you are not honoring and respecting the people who made that possible and saying, I am so glad, I am so thankful that our team has come together and done so well during this pandemic, while a lot of people were working from home, while a lot of people were laid off and getting unemployment during the first six months of the pandemic or so, UPS drivers were still out there working. I'm so thankful of the sacrifices that UPS workers have made for this company that I'm going to honor them and respect them and not ask, not only am I not going to ask for any concessions, I'm going to say, you deserve more. You deserve some of this extra value that you've created. That is the common sense if you were thinking with as a human instead of a lizard person, right? That's what you would be doing. But instead of doing that, after getting more profits than ever in the history of their company, UPS is saying, uh, we want actually more than that. We want more than that, and we want more than that consistently, and we want you to give up more of what you get from the value that you create. Not only are we not going to say, yes, you deserve more and we have more to go around, so you're gonna get more. They're saying actually, wow, all these profits look really cool. I wanna take more of it from you. Vampires, ghouls. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else to, uh, you know. So, so that's kind of the situation here. That's kind of the situation here. Um, and, and so I want folks to understand that when the corporate media, when local news, when right-wing shock jocks come on the radio, come on the TV, write in opinion columns and say, oh, these greedy union workers. Like, this is gonna be up on YouTube later, okay? Go back and check this out on YouTube at the Valley Labor Report and just remind yourself of like what's actually going on because uh, these people aren't gonna want you to remember that. Really gross stuff. We've got Will in the chat from California. He's a UPS driver and a Teamster. He says, yeah, we make good money, but inflation has wiped that away. Also, we, 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 sorry, we risked our lives keeping society running during the pandemic. We deal with extreme heat during the summer months. This job isn't a joke and we need to be compensated fairly for it. And that point about the extreme heat is really important. <clears throat> 
because there were drivers showing that during summer during the summer last year that their uh, trucks were getting up to 150 degrees, 150 degrees inside of the um, inside of the the back where they keep their packages, where they have to come in and out of, you know, all day, right? Uh, gets up to 150 degrees in there, and they don't have air conditioning in these trucks. They don't have air conditioning in the cabs. They don't have air conditioning in the back. They don't have air conditioning anywhere in these trucks. And uh, so, fortunately, one of the things that the UP that that UPS has agreed to is they have agreed now to air conditioning in these new contract negotiations. They've come to a tentative agreement to say, okay, yeah, sure, in 2023 we'll install air conditioning in our in our trucks, which would cost, I think, the estimate from the union to do this across the organization was something like tens of millions of dollars, maybe 50, maybe a hundred million dollars. Not very much, right? Um, when you think about $13.9 billion of profit, you just take like a fraction of a percent of that and you can give air conditioning to all these people. But until 2023, until there was the strike threat, the, uh, the lizard people that are in charge of UPS said, eh, Eh, not really. We're not really super interested in that. We'll just let you have heat strokes, actually. That's that's what sounds good to me, is my workers having heat strokes. So yeah, really exciting news on that front. Uh, Teamsters authorized a strike by 97%, and in six weeks, the union says, if we don't have a contract, we're going to go on strike. So be ready to support them. I'll be on the picket line here in Huntsville. Ostro is a journalist. He is a, uh, a freelance journalist, and he is host of the Upsurge podcast. That is a podcast that has been going on for some time now about this fight between the Teamsters and UPS. He's been covering these contract negotiations long before anybody in the mainstream media has, uh, before they realized that this was going on. Um, our first coverage of this, I believe, was almost exactly a year ago when we brought on uh, Brother Tony Rosario from uh, New York Local 804 to talk about the contract negotiations and the contract, or the contract campaign negotiations had not begun yet, uh, but nobody has been as thorough and as consistent in their coverage as Teddy, so we're really excited to have him on to talk about this. Teddy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me again. I nice see y'all. Yep, you too. So let's go ahead and talk about this tentative agreement. That's uh, what's on everybody's mind over the last week or so. The tentative tentative agreement was announced on Tuesday. The highlights went out, and the full contract actually went out pretty soon after that. It was Wednesday or Thursday that the full contract came out. So um, you know, now uh, everybody's had at least a couple of days to to read the contract. I, I wouldn't imagine ever, um, that most of us have read the full thing. I've taken a look at some of the articles, um, but uh, but Teddy, talk to us about what's in what's in the TA and 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 put it in uh, you know put it in context. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did read through the whole thing. Um, I am, I am not a lawyer, so I've been talking to a bunch of people to try to fully understand it. I don't know if I'm fully there yet. Probably most of the membership hasn't actually read the whole thing and they don't aren't fully there yet. Some of the folks I trust deeply are still trying to understand some of the language because this is complicated stuff. So I just want to mm. preface it that way. Um, 
there's a lot of stuff in it. Uh, I, I can like go through uh, just quickly some of the most important things. I think a lot of it has already been talked talked about on this show. Um, for one, they did eliminate the two-tier driver system, um, which was an enormous sticking point, which really was the impetus for um, you know electing Sean O'Brien, in 2021 Mm. and for this contract campaign that was one of the biggest key issues so they did eliminate that which is which is a huge which is a huge deal um you know and this is a this is setting precedent for other companies to delete their own tiers you know to abolish their own tiers such as the uh you know auto contracts that are coming up big three auto contract expirations for the uaw that's a huge part of their mandate Um, Right. So moving on, we can talk about the raises. There was a general wage increase of 750, which, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about wages, but 750 wage general wage increase um, compared to the last contract. That is very, very good. Some people are making even more, um, you know, across the uh, contract. Um, You know, let's see. Keep going. We keep going. There's there's um, seems to be more going into pensions. We still have to wait on that for the supplementals to come out and see. Um, Paul Prescott more in the chat mentioned that, you know, that, that there's some like really significant uh, uh, pension improvements, uh, like even a thousand dollars a month more in some cases. Right. Yeah, I think there's a thousand dollar increase in the pe- monthly pension payout for 60,000 workers in the central and southern regions. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I have to say this is one of the things that I, I am trying to understand right now. And I'm talking, talking with some folks, so I, right. I can't speak heavily on this, but um, from what I hear, uh, it, yeah, there is a significant, a significant increase for a sizable number of the workers. Um, but again, I, I, I want to hear from uh, some folks after talking about the supplementals. Full-time jobs is also really a big one, important thing. Um, you know, they created 7,500 new full-time work uh, inside jobs, 22 threes they're called according to the contract. Um, and this is a pretty big deal because last time in 2018, they they said they wanted to create 5,000 new uh, full-time jobs. It wasn't, however, there were loopholes about what those jobs would be. Um, what is really desired is full-time jobs inside the warehouse, um, mm. right? To uh, And creating these from part-time jobs, giving part-time workers the opportunity to get full-time jobs. And this has just simply not been the case um, since the last contract. And even further back, you know, some of the wins from 97, from 2002, weren't fully, weren't fulfilled because of um, basically the, the, previous administration didn't want to fulfill them they didn't care to um you know uh enforce the contract which is very necessary anyway so there's 7500 new full-time jobs which is a big deal and it doesn't appear like there's any sort of loophole to fill these jobs with other jobs give it to full-timers this seems pretty concrete but it will be up to the union to i think uh enforce it again moving on to working conditions uh you know there, there apparently will be no driver-facing cameras, or at least the audio and video functions will be uh, disabled, which is, uh, you know, was a big demand last year, especially when there was we were comparing, uh, UPSers were comparing the lack of air conditioning in the package car. Meanwhile, the surveillance device that was being introduced in some package cars, uh, you know, presumably to discipline the drivers. So, additional to that is that they can't use. Um, some of the other technologies they can't use them uh solely uh f- for uh discipline or they can't hmm. they have to use other factors to discipline drivers 
there there are remaining driver facing sensors that would be used for training purposes um but yeah it looks like that these are out they're not fully out of the package car perhaps um but this appears to me like a gain of course we all know about the air conditioning and new package fleet um starting in uh, next year with uh purchased package cars um, and you can stop me at any point. I'm just going through because there's a lot in this. Um, and there, these are some of very important wins and we can get to whether, you know, the, the, the reaction of the membership, but air conditioning in new package cars, uh, heat shields and ventilation retrofitted, um, you know, within 18 months, uh, basically uh, the entire fleet. This should be helpful to some folks. I mean, I know some people were concerned that it won't affect the entire fleet uh, super soon, but nonetheless, it's it's better than, uh, from my perspective, it's better than having no air conditioning and no heat shields and no ventilation. Right. Uh, it As really I keep is going. amazing, I mean, just to dwell on that for a second, mm -hmm. that UPS has made it so long without putting air conditioning in their package cars. Yes. Like, this is not an expensive thing to do at all, um, and, and the idea that they just haven't done it for so long is wild to me. Yeah. And... Insane. And just to just to linger there for a second, and we can continue talking about the specific provisions in the contract, but maybe it's important um, in the tentative agreement, but maybe it's important to just linger on here for a second, which is this was unthinkable about a year ago. Hmm. That something as simple as air conditioning would be put in the package car. And you have to ask, why did they get it? And it's what you said um, earlier in the show, which is they launched a year-long ca contract campaign. They organized like hell. They mobilized. They educated people. I mean, especially in the past month or so, by mobilizing people, organizing people into practice pickets, um, uh, rallies, uh, parking lot meetings, um, really, really uh, thousands, thousands of members going into some of these webinars, um, especially with the help of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Uh, they built a credible strike threat. And they, by doing that, that is the only reason they are getting, um, you know, what appears to be mm. a number of really big gains. Um, of course, there are questions that some members are having, and I don't know, we can talk about it if you'd like, about they want to win more. But the, the narrative here, I think, in this TA is that workers fought and they won. And this is this is going to have reverberations around the labor movement. Um, it, I think that's really important to linger on the point and I can continue going through some of the stuff. There's, there's other big important things in this, uh, that we can talk about as well, like eliminating forced overtime, the sixth punch specifically, basically workers were, um, made to come in, they were able to be forced in on the sixth day. Uh, now that won't be the case. Uh, you, you can work that sixth day if you want to. You can't be forced in to do it. And this is a this was a huge, huge demand by package car drivers specifically. Um, and, and to uh, be specific about it, uh, package car drivers won't be able to be forced in on a sixth day. I think other workers will be able to. Um, but for package car drivers who were forced in six days a week, 14 hours a day, especially during like the height, the e-commerce boom and the pandemic, this is this is life changing stuff. Absolutely. Um, now to keep going martin luther king day is a paid holiday you know uh it does look like there are some provisions to prevent uh specifically semi-truck driver work called feeder work in, in ups um to prevent some subcontracting of that work um that is another field that I, is is far more complicated and i i'm trying to talk to some folks to really understand what's going on there 
it looks like they are uh, limiting personal vehicle drivers. Those are the gig drivers. They're not completely gone, but they're limiting the uh, the peak season in which they were able to operate, and well as well as they're giving priority to part-time workers in order to take those roles with an eight hour guarantee. Part of the problem with this stuff is that like uh, the, specifically the gig work is there was kind of like uh, a free for all about how these folks could be treated around the country. Mm. Um, this is now it's more concrete about how these guys are going to be treated. Uh, they, they, you know, some people had car insurance provided by UPS. Others didn't. Now they're all going to get insurance. They're all going to get mileage uh, reimbursements. Um, and so, you know, they're not gone, but it does look like the the practice will be more curtailed. Um, and yeah, that's I, I may have missed some stuff and we can dig into some things. Um, and, you know, I didn't dig deep into some of the stuff that some UPSers out there probably wanted more from. Um, but overall, what we're looking at is like, uh, a contract that is far, far better than 2018, probably far better um, than those uh, in the past few decades. Hey, five seconds. Just wanted to say that this is only possible because of our donors. If you want to see more of this, then consider donating yourself at tvlr.fm slash donate. You and I were talking uh, yesterday, I, I think, about um, Jane McAlevey's article in The Nation and we felt like that framing was just <clears throat> was just so good that this is there really are you know genuinely a lot of gains here um partic- you know one of the things that you didn't mention was the part-timers um that there there have right. been a lot of part-timers that have been, been organizing for 25 an hour uh, and so 21 an hour definitely falls significantly short of that but there are people uh, across the country and right here in Alabama who are part-timers working for 15.50 an hour. And right. so if this contract goes through um or you know if if they you know if, if it if it doesn't go through and, and they get something better but just just on the $21 an hour um thinking about as of August 1st having a $5.50 an hour raise for hundreds thousands of workers across the state of Alabama across the country that's huge, right? And it's, of course it's enormous. It is. I mean, it, it is enormous, and um, and the uh, you, you know twenty one an hour is certainly not enough in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, um, and and that was you know a really big part of the twenty five uh, demand there. Uh, but but even what you know even what is in the the tentative agreement is I mean it's a lot better, right? What was the um, do you remember the increase? Um, in the the raises from the 2018 contract for comparison's sake, this is something I've been meaning to do. So I know don't I I won't be able to tell you right now. Um, mm. I'm I'm trying to do as much comparison as possible. I'm also looking back to '97. Um, so I don't know what I do know and can tell you is I have folks talking. I'm talking to folks who've been here for 20 years or so, and they're like, mm-hmm. I've never seen a a, wa- a general wage increase like this. Um, so. That, I, I see that as, as quite big. Yeah, seven dollars and fifty cents over yes, per and, hour at a minimum over the next five years. Right, and just uh, um, apologies to not specifically uh, talk about like the part time stuff um, because that is was that is what uh, the contract talks broke down on on July fifth. Came back to the table. This is presumably what they were negotiating and to mm-hmm. settle on this. Right, so. 750 general wage increase it could it it could be actually uh 
substantially lo- larger than that for some folks. Um, right. Because, you know, basically what's happening is if you're under 21, if you're a part-timer and you're under $21 an hour, um, you either get, uh, you know, the first year you get 275 um, uh, immediate raise or you are, you just, you're, you boost right up to $21 an hour, whichever one's higher Then certain part-timers who have uh, longevity of five years, five to 10 years, 10 to 15 years, um, you know, there's a scale, you are going to make an extra 50 cents to a dollar 50 um, an hour more. So some folks are getting 750, some folks are getting more than that. Um, So these wage increases, uh, you know, up to interpretation, whether they're what people, you know, I think we can safely say they're not what people deserve. People deserve far more, you know, people, folks probably deserve, you know, the people were talking about how uh, these, these uh, full-time drivers don't deserve 49 an hour. Um, I would say they deserve a lot more than that. I would say the part-timers deserve a lot more than 21 or 25 or 30, you know, Um, but in relative terms and uh, you know, especially for this labor movement, this time uh, workers fought and they got enormous gains in this tentative agreement. Exactly. And, and that's, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, there, there's been a lot of people echoing some of those things that, that Jane said in that article from The Nation. Uh, Paul mentioned it in the chat today, Paul Prescott. Uh, he's been on the show before. He's an organizer for Teamsters for a Democratic Union. I have one of their shirts on right now that I got at Labor Notes last year. Um, and he said that, that you know, it, it's important and possible and, and I think necessary, right, to, to hold these two things in your head, that yep. this, that this is not there there weren't as far as we can tell concessions we, the teamsters didn't give anything to ups and they got more than they have at least since 97 um and that is yep. because of everything that's happened over the last year but uh and and if you don't recognize it, it, it that there were there was work done and it was to a degree successful over the last year because so many people put in so many hours over the last year on this contract campaign and if you can't recognize that that one things at the bargaining table then you know it does kind of become disempowering if if people yes. you know run around calling this a you know like a sellout contract right, right. i mean there's a there's right. a difference between we deserve more and i believe we can get more and and saying it's a sellout contract right Exactly. You, we, we talked about this the other day, you know, I think we can look, you know, I've I'm talking to members right now and I like tons and tons of members. I think I told you, I I must've at least talked to over 50 at this point, individual people um, from around the country. And like what I'm hearing is the the predominant thing I'm hearing is this is a solid contract. We won. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is some sense, right, that they that we could have won more, right. um, and that's a healthy thing to to believe, yes. and that's actually incredible that you you are like you won this contract, this tentative agreement. It's not it, you know we still have to see whether it's going to be voted up or down, but to believe that you have the power to have more, um, that's an incredible thing. You know, for example, you know as far as I can tell, you're right. I don't see. Um, you know, I guess it depends on your definition of concession, but I don't see any concessions. A lot of folks are talking about one specific thing that it looks like there's a new wage tier. You know, arguably there's a new wage tier among part-timers because newcomers 
will uh, be on a different progress will be on a progression that will make them uh, seemingly until the next contract permanently uh you know making less than current part-timers mm-hmm. and that's arguably a tier right but it's a little right. bit different than like the 22-4 second tier driving which is new hires um, didn't get things right. They didn't have nine, five rights, the excessive overtime rights, and they got less money um, mm-hmm. than the uh, first tier drivers. That's a concession here. One, one group is getting a big, b- bigger boost than the other, right. but both are getting boosts and we, you can debate all day. You know, I'm not going to say one thing or another about whether um, they should do this or should not do that. You know, I'm not a UPS worker. You guys are the ones um, who are watching. You guys are the ones who are going to decide whether or not this is enough for you guys. Um, but that we have to be real about what we're looking at. That's not a concession. That's not a concession. Um And yeah, the folks who I'm talking to, as I said, um, I'm, you know, looking at this from the outside, there is a feeling that like, what, in my mind, I'm like, what could have been won with a strike? What could, what could this country look like um, with a strike? Or or as Jane McAlevey asked in that nation article, what would a, what would this strike have looked like if they had delayed negotiations to line up with the auto workers contracts, right? Um, uh, The big three contracts that expire in mid-September what how what could be where where, what's the reality of what could have been won those are really healthy and really important Mm -hmm. questions to ask Um, how much leverage a a struck a power analysis like like jane talks about do we you know do we have enough power to win more and and i think you know i mean I think you and I are, or at least I am, I won't speak for you. I'm sympathetic to the argument that there is more on the table. Um, but also, like you said, uh, that is for uh, the UPS Teamsters to decide. And yes. and one of the things that, that we want to do with bringing you on and, and, and over the next, you know, week or so is is helping people to get educated and and while i'm talking about helping people get educated um there are a couple of there are a couple programs on youtube that are run by teamsters uh that are uh really good at this stuff and that's uh roswell hub and the bi-weekly grievance uh both of those run by ups teamsters and on the roswell hub they just put up uh, two hours, a two-hour video yep. of like line by line through the contract with Greg. Greg Kerwood. So he's doing. Um, he's doing so God's work. Doing God's work, absolutely. Uh, so definitely check those out if you're a UPS teamster. We've only been able to get to the highlights right now, um, and and you know some of the uh, 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 some of the uh, member reactions, and and what you're seeing is is similar to what I'm seeing. I, we got this text message last week saying hello mason from ups local 89 in bowling green kentucky i just got word that new hires and anyone under 21 will now receive 20 21 dollars an hour effective immediately it seems like the strike will not happen now and it's so exciting and then there are and there are people in the uh like i've seen people in the chat saying more or less and i apologize i'm not going to be able to say your name because it's been going by fairly quickly but you know saying more or less this is a good contract um, and therefore I'm voting yes. And there are other people that are saying, you know, it's a good contract, but we could get more. And so I'm voting no. Right. And that, that seems to be kind of where the membership is right now. And I'll say also, like, I, I actually sort of pulled up some of my friends who are online but aren't following this mm. as much as me. I'm kind of like, what are you like? I asked yeah. genuinely, like, what are you seeing? Someone who's not me, someone who's paying attention, literally talking to dozens and dozens of workers. Um, 
and they they see stuff uh they see some of the critique they see the excitement and they're kind of like okay i guess there's like this is this is this is kind of a win and I, and i and thankfully i think there's more and more coming out that is just emphasizing that this is a win um yeah and even some of the folks i think who were like had emotional reactions to the highlights to yeah. a first glance at the uh, first glance, you know, at the actual contract language. Let's remember this came out, uh, you know, the highlights came out on Tuesday. I believe the the actual language came out on Thursday. Um, yeah. It's been a hell of a week, forgive me, but, you know, people are having emotional reactions. People are reading it. People don't uh, fully understand it or they do understand it and they're, they're upset or they're incredibly happy. So the voting will take place between August 3rd and August 22nd. Um, there's a lot to learn. Um, the UPSers are going to talk to each other, going to learn from each other. Um, they're going to think about this. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, we have people to kind of put it in perspective, like Jane McAlevey. Also, uh, other folks, I think, out there, Luis Feliz Leon has been taken to Twitter to really, you know, yeah. put this all in historical context, which is really, really valuable. Oh, people need to understand that. Sorry, we're going off the radio now. See you next week, radio folks. Sorry, I kind of. Okay, now we're off the radio. Sorry, I, I just I, I totally no I totally lost track of time. Uh, but but um, and so now we're um, uh, so yeah, we can we can wrap this. Uh, yeah, we can we can keep going and um, yeah. So continue your thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, no worries. Um, that I know. I think I mostly completed the thought, which is uh, we need to we need we need to like understand this in historical context. We need to trust the workers to make the, their own decisions. I've I've seen some people take to twitter uh, or other you know and also i hate to keep talking about twitter because that's not real life but right. or it can be partially real life but you know folks trying to tell people what they should and should not do and they're not even teamsters um yeah i don't know i'm gonna go ahead and say don't i'm gonna tell you what to do just don't do that you know support the workers and, and what their decisions are right um and uh, I'm I'm I am on the edge of my seat to see what's what's going to happen. You know, there you know, I, I think it would be disingenuous not to say that there there are folks out there who um, are pushing for a vote. No, um, you know, publicly. And right. will that will that succeed? We will have to wait and see. I'm sure there's folks in the chat who are saying vote no vote. Yes. Um, you know, this we're this is up to the UPSers to decide and we're going to we're going to watch this is not over yeah. yet and i think a lot of media has irresponsibly kind of talked about this mm -hmm. this is the it's a done deal and unfortunately what that does is that deleverages sort of all the power that UPSers have built of course it's not all gone um but to say that uh you know there's a deal suddenly the workers are striking rather than UPS striking itself um so mm -hmm. Uh, I think media, we need to keep pushing also on mainstream media to cover this uh, accurately and appropriately. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. Um, I do, uh, you know, a regular segment on a, um, on a, on a conservative radio show here in the area. And, and that's kind of how he framed it. It was like, oh, so, you know, there's no strike. And I was like, uh, that's up to the members. The members get to vote on this, and it's important that we recognize that uh, because, uh, you know, unlike so many workplaces, uh, there is there's a, a, a some amount of democracy uh, in the Teamsters and right. UPS, and that's super important to emphasize. And so, the members do have uh, the the members are going to have the final say, and we'll see what happens. And and I can I can under, I can certainly understand either uh, either one. And so, I think that. Um, 
I, I, I don't think that, that I've got any other questions for you, Teddy. Do you, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to wrap up with? Um, I think I think that covers it. At this point, it's a wait and see moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just to emphasize once again, worker in this situation, workers fought um, and they won, um, and they could win more. You know, perhaps either whether it's the next contract or it's it's still this contract. Uh, but that's the that's the message I I'm taking, and I think that's the message that the broader labor movement should take. When you fight, you win. Teddy Ostro, host of the Upsurge, freelance labor reporter. You can find his work in In These Times magazine, The Real News Network, um, The Nation, The New Republic, I believe. You've got bylines in uh, just about everywhere. Also follow him on Twitter at Teddy Ostro. Uh, Thanks again. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Sean Orr is a UPS Teamster and co-chair of the Teamsters for a Democratic Union. He joins us live now. Sean, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I really appreciate it. Hey, brother. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Um, the contract is ratified now. Um, you know, like I said, overwhelmingly, uh, really uh, just a huge amount of support from the members. And uh so, Sean, that means that, you know, everybody can just kind of like disengage, stop going to union meetings, uh, go to brunch for the next five years and, uh, <laughs> you know, just just let loose. Right. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what that means. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, we've oh, got. Come uh, on, Sean. I know. I know. I would love to. I would love to take some time off. <laughs> but, you know, um, a, a contract fight is never an end all game. You know, there's always more that needs to be done. There's always more that's left on the table. There's always things that need to be built upon. Um, and we definitely got some more initiative than we, than we had uh, previously. I think workers on the job really took the initiative in this contract fight. We defined the terms of what this, of, of what our union was going to be advocating at the table. Uh, and we defined the terms on, of, of what the company had to accept if they wanted to avoid a strike. Now, uh, that's not fixed, you know, that's not a fixed position, right? Like, you know, on, on the shop floor, somebody's always got the initiative. It's either us workers or it's the company. And if we're resting on our laurels, think, wow, man, we got this. Like we, you know, mm. king of the hill, we won this spot. Uh, guess what? Tomorrow, the company is going to knock you out of that. They're going to pivot. They're going to, they're going to come swinging from a different area. We have so, to constantly Sean, be- Now you're, you're telling me that- that it's possible that UPS would violate a contract that they agreed to. Yeah, I, I, they definitely would, especially one that they didn't want. You know, um, I think that uh, there's a lot of things there in this new contract that uh, we're going to, you know, the company's not going to enforce this contract on us. We're going to enforce this contract. We always have. Uh, and we're going to have to do that uh, every single day for the next five years. Uh, militant contract enforcement on the job. That's what myself and thousands of other uh, rank and file militants are going to be focusing on these next five years. Militant what does that look like? What, 
Yeah. What What does that look like exactly? Exactly. Day to day. What What you know? What are you going to be doing? And and what should members uh, across the country be doing to make sure that that you know uh, that, that UPS does follow the contract? Because e- even though you know it would be great to live in a world where um, everybody was a good faith actor and that when companies agreed to a contract, they wouldn't violate the contract and and you know uh uh do everything that they can to undercut workers but that's not the world that we live in and and we know that companies will do that so what are you going to be doing and and what should ups teamsters across the country be doing to make sure that uh that all of the gains that were won in this contract um are actually realized by the workers so i think the first thing that everybody's got to do all the militants got to do and all the activists on the job have to do is they have to go over uh what we won in this contract with as many of their coworkers as possible walk through it line by line you know especially the things uh that you know not the dollars and cents not the wages that we won but more of the contract language that we won and the contract language that we currently have get that out as much as possible and get as many people involved in forcing that on the job as you possibly can. Because UPS, just like any other workplace, is the exact same thing. A supervisor, you know, they want to do something, right? A manager mm-hmm. wants to do something. They know it's against a contract. They look around. They don't see a steward in sight. They're like, well, there's no steward. There's no union here, so I can just kind of do whatever I want. And mm-hmm. they'll have supervisors do union work. Uh, they'll violate people's seniority. They will uh, violate our safety language in the, in the workplace. They'll violate people's eight-hour requests or nine-five requests, whatever that is. And they just think, well, no steward, no union, right? We need to change that culture on the job. We need to demonstrate that the entire membership are the union and that any member can enforce this contract. It doesn't have to be a steward. It doesn't have to be a local officer. Any member of this union. And that comes down to... Uh, making sure that our work's protected, that supervisors are not doing it. Uh, it comes down to making sure that everybody who is scheduled to work is working, that the company is not just sending people home. Uh, that comes down to enforcing our seniority rights on the job. Seniority prevails in all circumstances. Uh, and I think we need to we need to take that phrase and we need to run with it as far as we possibly can. Mm. Um there's a lot of different things that we're going to have to, uh, here that uh, I think we need to build off of. I mean, for drivers, we got this uh, new changes to our eight-hour request language. You know, I'm, with us drivers, we don't get a you know a limit to our overtime outside of the uh, federally mandated DOT hours of a uh, 14-hour day. So you, they can work you up to 14 hours, right? Um, but as drivers, we can put in a request for an eight-hour day where they schedule you just to work for eight hours. And they violate it all the time. Uh, but we got a little bit of stronger language in here now. Language that, in my opinion, means that we can take some work off of our trucks and guarantee that AR day ourselves. Mm. Now, all of that stuff is just, you know, words on a piece of paper <clears throat> until it's put into practice. Uh, and I think we have to go about setting the standards and setting a new precedent of what is going to be uh, allowed in this contract. Because uh, that's going to give us just, you know, the, the biggest amount of room possible. And the company's not, the company's going to go into work uh, expecting, you know, everything to be the same. They're mm-hmm. not going to uh, tell their supervisors and their managers, hey, here's all the new changes in the contract, stick to them. They're not going to do that. It's business right. as usual. They're going to just act like nothing happened. And if they're acting like nothing happened and we act like nothing happened, guess what? 
nothing probably happened. This contract mm. didn't really matter. We have to go and we have to put the work in of actually enforcing this on the job and building off of it because there's a lot more ground to cover uh, than what we just got in this most recent round. And we have to be prepared and positioned to, to win all that we can over the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's all great stuff, uh, Sean. Is, is there anything else that you think is, is important to talk about uh, regarding the, uh, you know, the UPS Teamster contract and enforcement in this fight uh, before we uh, move on to our next topic? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I, I would add to that is that, you know, we do have a lot more work to be done at UPS. Um I think that we've demonstrated something. We learned something this most recent round, which is, you know, we went into this uh, contract fight with a bunch of demands, mostly around pay stuff, right? We want to get rid of a two-tier wage system. We want all drivers paid the same. We want part-timers to get a big pay increase. We want to get an extra paid holiday or two. It's a lot of pay stuff, right? I mm-hmm. And, you know, we went into this expecting you know, uh, to, to really hit a wall, right? And probably have to go and strike over it. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, the company TA'd a lot of our demands. They TA'd eliminating a 22, uh, the 22-4 classification, our two-tier driver system, day one of this contract. That's kind of crazy. Uh, they TA'd the AC and trucks. They, we got a significant uh, pay increase for part-timers. Um, I think that we learned something. We learned that UPS is willing to pay a lot of money to avert a strike. Mm. Um, and those were the demands that we brought to the table. We brought a bunch of demands around, around money and around getting a bigger slice of the pie. I think that uh, what we need to do next go around is we need to get a bigger slice of the power mm. on the job. We, you know, we, we, we got paid, but the company is going to still be violating our contract. More importantly, they're going to be violating our rights as human beings on the job. They're going to be forcing us to work. They're going to be dictating to us. They're going to be telling us what to do. Uh, I think that we need to get more out of the basic assertion of human dignity on the job and asserting it on the spot, not, you know, filing a grievance and waiting for that to get resolved six months from now. But contract on the spot enforcement. Um, I think there's a lot that we can build off of toward that. I think we started getting a little taste of it with this contract fight. Um, But you know, that's that, that you know, the questions of uh, human dignity, I think, are going to go on past this. Um, I'm really inspired by what the UAW folks are fighting for. I think, uh, you know, when I heard uh, their demand around uh, four days of work with five days of pay, I was looking mm-hmm. around like, damn, why do we think of that? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I. I, I think there's a lot to be built off of, and uh, this kind of new new uh, moment we're coming into with a labor movement is going to serve a lot of inspiration for myself and my coworkers. We wanted to talk about, you know, probably one of the biggest things to happen in labor this month, and, that- and something will probably need to dive into a lot more later <laughs> yeah yeah but we we just wanted to you know touch on it here is that it is all but certain that um that sean fain uh uaw reformer on the um members united slate uh backed by the uawd reform caucus he's all but certain to win the international presidency of the uaw um, I say all but certain because all the votes are not counted yet, but he has a 500 vote lead 
with only 600 votes to be counted. So, Hey y'all, this is Joe, the video editor. Sorry for the interruption, but Jacob wanted me to give you an update on the situation that actually since this segment was recorded, the election was officially called for Sean Fain. That was on March 25th by the election monitor. So there's an update on the situation. Everything is all finalized and the UAW is looking forward to starting a new chapter. So keep an eye on them. All right, back to your regularly scheduled broadcast. It would be super wacky if he did not win. And he is, you know, he's all but declared victory. Um, he said, you know, let's get all the all these votes counted and, and let's, you know, uh, move forward. Um, so, you know, huge, huge deal in the UAW. Nearly 80 years yeah. of top down one party rule has come to an end. That is significant. Yeah, uh, Labor Notes has a good story on it um, by Luis Leon and Jane Slaughter. Um, but one of the quotes that I think is really the most, hopefully, hopefully, you know, the most indicative of where the union is going to go under the new leadership is uh, Sean Fain mentioned that Back in the 40s and 50s, union leaders in the UAW were talking about 32-hour work weeks. Mm. And in 2021 and 2022, we're negotiating seven-day weeks and 12-hour days. Wow. So, you know, that is – he didn't explicitly say, you know, we're going to be gum – we're going to be gunning for um, we're going to be gunning for 32 hour weeks. But the comparison there is, I think, intentional and, and a good one. Um, and it's something that we should be, you know, we should be moving on the offensive. Uh, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the first offense offensive, I guess, is to win back the 40 hour work week. You know, since so many working people in America uh, no longer have a 40 hour work week. Uh, everybody should have a 40 hour work week. Shouldn't have to work more than that. Uh, eight hours for work, eight hours for play and or eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for what you will. Um, that is, you know, I think that's incredibly important. And I think that, you know, frankly, folks should have more than that. And, you know, a 32 hour week is is really where we need to be heading. But I guess the first stop on <laughs> on that road is to is to cement, you know, the 50, uh, the 40 hour work week. Um but, you know, ho hopefully there, there's going to be some moves towards that. Yeah, just uh, really highly recommend the article, uh, again, by Louise and Jane over at Labor Notes. Um, it's a new day at the UAW. And, um, yeah, they kind of go into detail with the election. And there's some good good statements there from some of the reformers who've, who won office or who helped put them in office. Um, and even mentioned that some of the retirees – in closed locals, right? These are areas where uh, it's nothing but retirees because there's no active union anymore because there's no right. plant to unionize anymore. And right. so there are places like that all over the country. And uh, so you can get some sense of how the retirees were voting, at least in those circumstances. And it looks like mm -hmm. they were favorable to reform as well. Um, you know, uh, I know I was very happy to be able to tell my in-laws yesterday, like, hey, you helped make history mm -hmm. by participating in this election and by voting uh, and, and asking for change within the union. You helped make history. And that's huge. Uh, mm -hmm. We need a strong UAW in this country. It's important 
for the entire labor movement, that UAW be at its best. Uh, UAW at its best helped labor be at its best. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the 1930s and 40s, and that's obviously a time when we were much stronger as a labor movement in this country. And a lot of that can be, you know, point, you can point back to the strong UAW. So I, uh, you know, I hope that this bodes very well. And uh, I know there was, you know, low turnout in some of it. And I think uh, Fain has already kind of pointed to that as maybe there's there's room for improvement, right? Obviously, there are people who are disengaged, uh, who are maybe burnt out or, or disenchanted. And, uh, you know, the union has work to do to rebuild confidence. Uh, but I really uh, I, I'm excited to know that uh, there's there's a new energy within the UAW. And I hope it bodes well. And I hope uh, that means more and more members from the rank and file getting engaged to uh, you know, reclaim their union and make it a strong fighting UAW that we all need. Yes, um, and you know there was some uh, very little conversation on Twitter uh, started by Matty Glacius about, uh, and he said, "quote So wait, did the UAW successfully organize a bunch of graduate students whose influx then led to leadership's ouster in favor of a new, more militant group?" Um, and that is definitely something that, you know, the the old guard would be pushing. But uh, graduate workers only made up like three percent of Sean Fain's vote. Uh, right. There were several locals in traditional UAW strongholds and manufacturing that were uh, very, very supportive of the reform group. And Hamilton Nolan from In These Times said if you say, wait, did this happen, and then find out the actual answer, which is no, you're a reporter and you make $60,000 a year. If you say, wait, did this happen, and then just stop there, you're a pundit and you make a million dollars a year. <laughs> right? <laughs> which I thought was a very, uh, a very um, depressingly true <laughs> tweet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can always count on Iglesias to come up with something bogus. Uh, that'll get some clicks. Yep. Uh, so, uh, Mel Sutton in the chat said that there are, you know, um, going back to USW stuff and is there anything else that you, that you want no, to say about I the just, UAW? Yeah, I think that's it. I just wanted to really, uh, you know, put that on folks radar as something we'll probably dive into more in detail later, but, uh, you know, that is a groundbreaking election and that mm -hmm. could really, uh, could change things and and those kind of reform efforts are gaining ground elsewhere they've already uh you know had success with the teamsters with new president sean o'brien so you know keep your eyes on ufcw and maybe hmm. reform efforts within that union as well but uh yeah i just you know want to put that on folks radar there's change coming with the uaw and that could really uh forebode change within labor as a whole Let's talk about the UAW. UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, have begun bargaining with the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, and they began the bargaining with a bang. We talked about we opened the um, uh, we talked about the bargaining as it opened, um, and we talked about how traditionally the leadership of the UAW began the bargaining session with. A president's handshake between the president of the UAW and the CEOs of the big three. And that was this big, you know, kumbaya 
team sh- team partnership kind of symbolism there. And this time, the new leadership of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain, um, and the United Auto Workers for Democracy slate, uh, they called it the Members United slate, they did not do that, which I think is very good. They started it with they started negotiations with a member's handshake. And the international president went to multiple factories and shook hands with members and asked them what they're wanting to see from negotiations. And of course, that's not the only time that they've solicited input from the members. There's been a long, you know, there, there's been a lot of solicitation from the members about what they want to see in these, these negotiations, is my understanding. And so that is a much better way to start off, uh, to start off negotiations, in my opinion. Um, and that combative militant attitude um, that we kind, you know, that we saw in the run up to and during the negotiations between the Teamsters and UPS, there was much more, you know, much more militant and combative rhetoric, and there was an intentional raising of the expectations of Teamsters members, and that is happening right now with UAW members. And so last week, International President Sean Fain did a live stream on Facebook and YouTube updating the members about, uh, you know, about the negotiations and, and giving an overview of the profits of the big three automakers and comparing that to the state of a current employee at the big three automakers. So let's start off with this clip where Sean Fain talks about how much money the big three automakers have made over the past decade. So as you can see, I have some props with me today for this Facebook Live. I want to draw your attention to the first image, which is literally ripped from last week's headlines. The big three released their quarterly earnings reports last week, and the companies again are having a blockbuster year. As you can see from these headlines, profits soar or profits at GM are soaring. Profits at Stellantis are record-breaking, and profits at Ford—I'm sorry—at Ford are surging. Altogether, the big three have made a combined bottom-line profit of $21 billion in the first half of 2023, and now they're telling Wall Street their profits for the full year will be billions more than they originally expected. This comes on top of the quarter of a trillion dollars that the big three collectively made in North American profits over the last 10 years. So what have the big three done with these staggering profits? Instead of rewarding the workers who spent long hours wrecking their bodies on the line to make these profits possible, the big three have funneled billions into stock buyback schemes that artificially inflate the value of company shares and further enrich company executives and the top 1%. That's billions of dollars that have been robbed from the workers who made these profits possible. That's billions of dollars that weren't spent on the EV transition. So when the big three say the future is uncertain and that the EV transition is expensive, remember that they've made a quarter of a trillion in North American profits over the last decade and have poured billions of it into special dividends, stock buybacks, and supersized executive compensation. Our message going into bargaining is clear. Record profits mean record contracts. There you go. Uh, 
I mean, those are just the facts, right? He's just laying out the facts, and it's important that people understand that. You know, when these when when these companies begin to 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 cry poor at the negotiating table, as they're now coming out and saying, "Oh, these demands are too they're too much. They're asking for too much." Just remember the historical record of what is going on at these companies in the last 10 years. They're making record profits while the real compensation of employees is going down. And I mean, by the way, I mean, I think as consumers, we can see that the quality of the product is is going down. You know, vehicles used to last forever, forever. And now it... it you can, you know, there's a lot of times that you can barely make it to 100,000 miles. Um, and people, you know, people blame that. I've heard, I've heard people attempt to blame that, blame that on the employees saying, oh, well, you know, look, the UAW produced cars, they don't last as long as some of the Japanese produced cars like Hyundai or Toyota. And uh, that is so silly because <laughs> the UAW workers are not the ones who make the decisions about what materials to use. They're not the ones who decide what designs to go with. They're not the ones doing, you know, that's, that is totally out of what they're doing. That is not within their purview. That is all management's. That is all management prerogative about what is produced and how it's produced and to what quality it's produced. They can only control what they can, what they do on the line. So the product quality, absolutely not their fault. Uh, but we have seen, I mean, you know, we've seen it decline. We've seen it decline. And all of this on the consumer end and on the worker end, declining, uh, uh, you know, declining expectations from these big three automakers while they're making more money than they ever have. Literally, literally more money than they ever have. So remember that when they start to cry poor. And just to illustrate some of what I'm saying about the declining living standards of, of big three employees. Let's play the second clip from Sean Payne. <clears throat> While big three executives have used those extreme profits to pump up their pay, our members have fallen further and further behind. This chart compares what our contracts provided in 2007 compared to what they provide today. As you can see here, an auto worker starting at a big three company in 2007 had a higher starting wage than an auto worker starting in 2023. And that's without taking inflation into account. If the 2007 starting rate had kept up with inflation, newly hired big three employees would be making $28.68 in today's wages. That's more than $10 an hour higher than the current rate. That's almost $21,000 more per year. That's a life-changing amount of money that our members have been robbed of. Sorry, I got to take a drink here. But as many of you know, that's not the full story. The starting pay today is even lower for our temporary workers. Ford and GM hire temps at $16.67 an hour. Stellantis hires temps at just $15.78 an hour. That is criminal. In 2007, it took three years for a new hire to reach the top rate back then of $28 an hour. Today, 16 years later, 
it takes eight years to reach a top rate of around $32 an hour. Even that top rate is much lower than it should be. During the Great Recession, we lost cost of living adjustments, which made sure that our paychecks kept up with inflation. We won cost of living at General Motors all the way back in 1948. And then when inflation took off in the 1970s, the UAW won cost of living across all of our employers to ensure that our standard of living didn't fall further behind. The big three have come roaring back since the Great Recession, but cost of living, which was suspended then, has not. Prior to 2007, every member at the big three earned a pension and every member received health care when they retired. Today, the majority of our members across the big three automakers are second class of workers who are being denied retiree health care and pensions. When you put these two images together, they paint a damning picture of what's happening, not just in our industry, but across the economy. The rich are getting richer, while the rest of us are getting left behind. And just to add a couple of other statistics, it would take... So one of the issues that they're trying to fight in these negotiations is not only the second tier of workers in the big three automakers, like their their kind of standard plants, but also the battery production plants, right. uh, which are in many cases non-union, not all, uh, but in many cases non-union. And even where they are unionized, the employers have not budged and, and they are significantly below even the second tier of employees at the standard big three manufacturing plants. And just, to illustrate that, a production worker coming off the street working at Ultium, uh, which is a, a electric battery manufacturer owned by one of the big three, they only make $16 an hour. While the CEO, Mary Barra, I think she is the CEO of GM, she makes $29 million a year. Hey, five seconds. Just wanted to say that this is only possible because of our donors. If you want to see more of this, then consider donating yourself at tvlr.fm slash donate. It would take an Ultium employee working full time 16 years to make not what Mary Barra makes in a year, not even what it takes her to make in six months or even one month or even two weeks, it would take an Ultium employee 16 years working full time to make what this CEO makes in one week. Wow. Insane. Additionally, these companies have closed 65 plants in the last 10 years, and the majority of those plants were not closed during or immediately following the recession. Rather, they were closed in periods of high and record profits for the big three automakers. And so, as a response to all of this, the declining standards of workers, the plant closures, the disrespect that workers face from the big three automakers, ah. they have put out, the UAW has put out, the members' demands. Apparently, they used to call the list of the bargaining priorities that the UAW would present to the big three, they used to call those the president's demands. 
They're calling them the members' demands this time. And those demands are to eliminate tiers on wages and benefits, give substantial wage increases at 46% over the next four years. They want to restore COLA, the cost of living adjustment. They want a defined benefit pension plan for all workers. They want to reestablish retiree medical benefits. They want a right to strike over plant closures. They want working a working family protection program. And this is really, really cool. That would mandate that the companies, if they leave, which the workers will have more leverage in the event that they try to leave a plant if these if they get all of these bargaining priorities because they'd have the right to strike over plant closures. But even if the company is able to successfully close a plant, uh, if they're able to get this in the contract, the Working Families Protection Program, it would require the big three automakers to pay UAW members to do community service in the communities that the big three automaker decided to abandon. That is a fantastic idea. Um, they also want to end the abuse of temp workers, drastically reduce the use of temp workers, convert, I think he said, all current temporary employees to full-time employees. They want to significantly increase retiree pay, and they want more paid time off for their families, including a four-day <coughs> work week. They want 32 hours of work for 40 hours of pay. Uh, and that would right be on. a huge, huge deal. And it is about <laughs> time that somebody is coming out with this. Because if you just look at how much productivity has increased over the last, since we won the 40-hour work week, think about right. we produce, I don't know how much more it is, but it's, <laughs> it is like an order of magnitude larger. We produce more value, so much, like 10 times more value than we were producing in an hour back when we won the 40-hour work week. And now we are moving backwards. We're not moving forwards. We're moving backwards instead of having that productivity go into the workers who produce the value instead of us taking home, us being able to benefit from the increased productivity from the increased value that we're making. That's all going into the CEO's pockets. And we are getting the same and in sometimes declining rates of compensation and working more. Right. Sean right. Fain was talking about how UAW members at Big Three Automakers are now working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week. That is, and, and he said that's not, thriving that's just surviving and, and that's absolutely true and and he mentioned and i i thought it was very powerful how he was in a group in his church and there was a minister who who in that small group at his church who routinely did deathbed consultations and he said that this this minister uh, told the group that he had never in all of his deathbed consultations heard anybody say that they wish they had spent more time at work. And in fact, right. it was very common that people regretted not <coughs> spending more time with their families. And that's what we're talking about, right? That's people lose sight of that. People just think about the money. 
when we're talking about how much should people make, how much should people work, they lose sight of the fact that when we work for a company, when we create value for a company, when we create profit for these ghouls and leeches at the top, we are selling our life. That's what it is. We are selling pieces of our life to these people. And they are not respecting that. They are not giving us enough for the value of our life. And that's what they're trying to address here, not only with the increased wages, but I think, I mean, the thing that I am, I'm really most excited about is this push to decrease working hours, because that is so important. And we have really, really lost sight of that as a labor movement and as a society. And we have, we have allowed so much encroachment into what precious little time we have on this earth. Right. We have allowed too much of it to be stolen by people making a profit from us. Yeah, I I really agree with you, and I, I think it's huge that they're including that as a demand, and I so agree with it because, you know, we came close to a 30-hour work week in the 30s. Um, our movement really aspired to that, and our movement has always fought to preserve time for family, preserve time at home uh, for rest and for what you will. And I think it's really about time that we put that demand back on the table, that we need to reduce the number of working hours. As you said, productivity has skyrocketed. Uh, it, there's, there are climate implications as well. If you listen to the economists who've studied this and, and how uh, climate and the economy intersect, there's reasons to believe mm -hmm. that working less is actually good for the uh, environment. And right. um Beyond the fact that it's good for our social development, it's right. good for our families, it's good for our communities. Uh, and just to put some numbers to it, from 1948 through 1979, productivity and compensation were, you know, around the same, right? There's, there was a little difference, um, but they, they both rose at about the same rates. But from 1979 to 2021, productivity and compensation totally, uh, took off at different rates, right? Productivity increased over the last few decades, 64.6%. Mm. Hourly pay only increased 17.3%, right? Mm. So productivity has grown 3.7 times more than our pay, mm. all right? And so that is just put some numbers to what you're, you're expressing here, that productivity has increased. We as working people have not seen that value that value has been collected by the top, and it's about time uh, that we get some of that back, and I say we get some of our time back, uh, because so many folks are out here working more than 40 hours a week, Yeah, and we have to reset the standard for our lives and for our living conditions and our working conditions. We've got to reset the standards. Too many people are working 50, 60 hours a week. Too many people are having to combine multiple jobs. To, and work 50, 60 hours a week, right? They're not even getting overtime pay. Mm. They're still draining that much of their life, and they're not even getting the overtime premium. Yep. So many people are working in jobs where, yeah, they get time and a half, but what if they had a union mm. and could get double time? Yeah. 
What if they could have premiums, uh, you know, during for over eight hours in one day or premiums for working after midnight? And, and you know, those are the kinds of things that a union can provide you. So, uh, you know, really appreciate some of the demands being brought out and just wishing all the best for UAW in these negotiations and, you know, hoping that the members can organize and really push to to get the best kind of contract possible. Absolutely. And that, you know, that differential, 64% increase in productivity, 17% increase in wages. That differential, that is not, it's just important to understand that that value is not lost, right? It is out there. It is real. It's just not being taken by us, by the people who create, who produce, by the people who make, by the people who do. It's being taken by the people who own. That's the, 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 the question is not, does this money get created? Does this value get created? Does somebody go home with extra money from this extra productivity? That's not the question. That money is there. It is being created. That value is being created. That profit is being created. The only question, the only question is who gets it? Who gets it? And right now, it's the people at the top, the people who are make, making money off of money, not the people who are making money off of labor. Uh, that's who's taking it. And so really excited about the UAW and the Teamsters trying to uh, trying to take it back. We've got some great stuff for you today, in particular, the UAW's new tentative agreement at Ford. Um, really, really, really cool stuff happening there. Um, and, you know, this agreement came after the UAW expanded their strike to the 6,800 workers at Stellantis's Sterling Heights assembly plant in Michigan on Monday, which is the uh, Stellantis's most profitable plant, and 5,000 workers at General Motors Arlington assembly plant in Texas on Tuesday. It also came after the week prior, the UAW struck Ford's Kentucky truck plant, which is responsible for 54% of Ford's profits, and another huge Ford moneymaker is the plant that manufactures the Ford F-150s. And so the what they were doing in the stand-up strike uh, by standing up at uh, Sterling Heights in Michigan and uh, uh, the Stellantis' Sterling Heights assembly plant in Michigan and General Motors' Arlington assembly plant in Texas on Monday and Tuesday was basically telegraphing that if Ford didn't meet them where they needed to be, then on Wednesday, the F-150 plant was going out. And so that is, uh, and, and that's what Fain said in his live stream uh, earlier in the week. They, he said that Ford knew what was coming for them on Wednesday if we didn't get a deal. And so Ford was highly motivated to get a deal because uh, after the Kentucky truck plant was taken out, if you take out the Ford F-150 plant, you are really, really cutting into Ford's operations uh, and their ability to uh, maintain a profit. And so, uh, so they're... Uh, and you know this uh is huge the the strategy is hugely responsible for them being able to get what they got here at ford um and you know we're never going to see obviously a you know uh recantations by 
the extremely silly people who were saying that this strike strategy was not radical enough or that they knew better how to conduct a strike because they have YouTube shows and have <laughs> never been in a union in their life, uh, much less been in contract negotiations, much less ask their coworkers to go on strike, right? Um, but uh, but still, for people that were listening to them, it's definitely worth, uh, you know, definitely worth taking a look at what they want in this tentative agreement and how they want it. Because by telegraphing, you know, that this is what's next for you, Ford, if you don't meet us where you need to meet us on Wednesday, they were only able to do that because they were striking all three at once, but they weren't striking all of all three at once. So they were able to play the companies against each other exactly like the companies have been playing workers against each other for decades. And you know that this is an effective strategy because the CEOs have been going absolutely nuts in the business press talking about how unfair it is to play these companies off of each other uh, when they need to instead they need to be united against the non-union uh, automakers. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but this is what companies have been doing to workers for decades. They've been whipsawing us. They've been whipsawing us in union strongholds versus other union strongholds saying, OK, you know, this union local here in Michigan, uh, they accepted this. And so that's why here in New York, you've got to accept this. They've been doing that uh, inside of the country with Union plants versus non-union plants saying to union plants, look, if you don't if you don't accept this, then we're going to have to open a non-union plant and take all of our production over there instead of working here. And they've been doing that with plants in the United States and plants outside of the United States saying, look, if you can't do it for this much here, then we'll go to Mexico where we can do it for dollars a day. And that is also the importance of not only ending tears in the United States, but also ending tears internationally. And um, the I, I am very, very hopeful that that will be a big project of the UAW moving forward after this strike is over, um, uh, specifically getting wages internationally closer to what we have in Western countries, in European and uh, the United States manufacturing centers. So anyway, let's talk about that uh, tentative agreement that they won at Ford. Oh, but also one, one more exposition before we get into the details of the agreement. Um, the press has been reporting this agreement much more um, cautiously than they have with any other tentative agreement that I have ever seen in my life. Um, and I like that. And that is because of the way that Sean Fain has uh, presented this, right? Like, so basically at every, in every other union, when they get a tentative agreement, you know, they're really, really pushing it. Ratification is more or less a foregone conclusion. And that's how the union reports it to the press. And because the press, because there are no labor reporters in the press anymore, the press basically takes the press release and reprints it and says, OK, well, this is what it is. The 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 issue is over now. And that's not what Sean Fain did in his live stream uh, last week. He said that, you know, this is what we have in this agreement. But he repeatedly reiterated that the membership has the final word on whether this is enough repeatedly 
emphasizing that point, that the membership is the highest authority in the union and they have the power to vote this agreement up or down. And that's huge. And that's true in the UAW and it's true in any other contract negotiations. But the leadership in many other unions, most other unions do not emphasize that point like Sean Fain did, uh, giving the members like underlining for the members that they have the autonomy to decide whether this is enough. And I really love that. And because of that, the, the business press has been reporting it much more cautiously. I even saw one headline, I think, I think in the Washington Post or the New York Times that said Ford has a tentative agreement with the UAW, uh, tentative is the key word. Um, and so that's, you know, really great to see that, that kind of language recognizing the autonomy, um, that the members have in the democracy in the negotiation process. Really, really love that. And so this, this is the first step in ratifying this agreement. They have reached a tentative agreement at the bargaining table. The next step is that the UAW's National Ford Council is going to vote on whether to send the tentative agreement to the membership, right? So this is basically a preliminary vote saying like, does the National Ford Council think this is enough? If the National Ford Council doesn't think it's enough, then it's not worth sending, sending down to the membership and they're going to go back to the negotiating table. But assuming that the Ford Council approves it, then the next step is that on Sunday, on Sunday night, Sean Fain that said that they are going to be having a Facebook live stream to review the tentative agreement and uh, publicly and highlight giving a highlighter that will be published online and a change pages or a white uh, white book will be published online. And that's basically the con the the, the contract and everywhere that there are there are changes to the contract so the changes will be marked out and the new language will be uh will be put in the white book the fourth step is going to be regional meetings to walk through the tentative agreement with local leaders and then the fifth step is that locals will hold informational meetings to review and discuss tentative agreement and then hold ratification votes so um very clearly laying out their democratic ratification bonus and um much that that rhetoric is very 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 welcome as far as i'm concerned Hey, five seconds. Just wanted to say that this is only possible because of our donors. If you want to see more of this, then consider donating yourself at tvlr.fm slash donate. Okay, so without further ado, let's talk about what they want in this contract. The total value of this contract is, is over four times more than the value of the 2019 contract. That is, that is huge. Additionally, in this contract, there are more in raises than the past 22 years combined. So really, really big movement here. And so specifically in this contract, the general wage increase is 25%. The all wage increases from 2001 to 2022 were only 23%. So there's going to be more movement in the next four years on wages than there were over the past 20 years. In addition to the general wage increase, 
like we have repeatedly informed everybody on the shows, they won the 2009 Ford Cola formula back. And so uh, with estimates of inflation, the expectation is once you factor cola in that the total wage increase is going to be 33% after cola. So 25% general wage increase, 33% after COLA. So really, really big gains there. The top wage will increase about 33% through the 2023 agreement, through the end of the agreement. It's going to end in 2027. It's a four-year agreement. The starting wage will increase by about 68%. They were able to take the progression down from eight or nine years to three, which is something that the UAW has not had since the 90s. A three-year progression. So you're going to be starting 68% higher than you would have and getting to 33% higher than the previous ceiling in less than half the time. So really, really huge movement. Current temp. Temporary employees at Ford will get a 150% raise through the 2023 agreement. They're going to be making more than double uh, what they make now by 2027. Some workers at Sterling Axel and Rawsonville, which is their parts distribution centers, will be seeing up to an 85% raise immediately. <laughs> immediately on ratification. Because of how they had, remember, the parts distribution centers uh, at Ford, GM, and Stellantis were basically on a second tier of employment where, you know, they were making $20 an hour where the assembly plant workers were making like $30-something an hour. And so they've eliminated that tier. Parts distribution centers at Ford are now on the assembly plant schedule. And so with that, The lowest paid workers at these parts distribution centers are going to be seeing an 85% raise immediately. I I mean, imagine almost doubling your salary overnight. That's what the UAW has done for these people at Ford. Um, They, uh, like I said, won back three-year wage progression, the 2009 COLA formula, and ending tiers. Since they launched the stand-up strike, Ford's offer has increased in value by 50%. They also won the right to strike over plant closures, which is totally unheard of. I don't think that the UAW has ever had an agreement like that in a contract with Ford. And what that means is a right to strike over plant closures. That means that over the course of this agreement, if Ford tries to outsource any of their production from the United States to other uh, to other comp- uh, to other countries, or just to close a plant indefinitely, then the UAW is going to have the right to strike over that, to put pressure on the company to not follow through with that decision. Uh, unions have not had that amount of power written in black and white in a union contract. I don't think ever. That is a huge, huge concession from Ford. I mean, and, it, and, and you know, if you know anything about unions or collective bargaining or you've been part of the collective bargaining process, the no strike clause is basically treated as sacrosanct. It is not, um, it, it's just taken for granted. There's not even really any discussion about it. It's just, okay, you know, we agree not to lock you out over the course of this contract and you agree not to strike. And so them getting this back 
Huge. Absolutely huge. There's also going to be a $5,000 signing bonus. Um, and in addition to the signing bonus, there are reportedly talks that there is going to be some amount of compensation on top of that for workers that have been on strike. Um, presumably not a one-to-one, -one, like a dollar for dollar, what they would have made if they had been working, but really any amount of compensation for having been on strike is another enormous, enormous concession on the part of Ford and a really big win from uh, for the UAW. So we are really, really excited to um, excited to see that. Jacob, I know that the details are still coming out on the agreement, and I, I believe you mentioned that tomorrow night is when we're going to get a lot more information. Mm -hmm. Do we know much about the retirees? Um, we they did say they were not specific, but they did say that um, that there will be increases to current retiree contributions, increases to four hundred one k contributions. And I think they said there were going to be increases to pension payouts um, for folks that are um, uh, uh, for for, uh, for folks currently working when they retire. So um, so they were not super specific about the um, changes to the retirement plans, but there they did say that there had been movement. Right, right, and yeah, I just know particularly here in Alabama, we have a lot of retired UAW members. Uh, and so just curious of, you know, what we know right now. And of course, mm -hmm. there, there's just a lot more to find out. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see the full details, but uh, a lot of big wins already. And, you know, we'll see how the membership feels about it. And uh, we'll also see what happens with GM and Stellantis if they start to follow suit. But um, I mean, those numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so on, uh, I think I saw a question in the chat about whether or not they're going to be working and the uh, there they are going to be returning to work at Ford uh, during the negotiation, during the tentative agreement ratification process. And that's another benefit of the kind of stand up strike strategy is because um, this is going to put pressure on uh, put even more pressure on GM and Stellantis to come to a deal because um, the last thing that they want is for Ford's operations to be up and up and running uh, while the UAW is still striking GM and Stellantis. So a lot of flexibility and a lot of, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of wins at Ford uh, right. by the UAW. Right. And, and one thing I think is worth just remembering for folks, especially, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not a union member, you know, I, I hope it's it's worth pulling out like the fact that the members get to vote on this agreement, right? The the members have the final say, um, and collective bargaining is not a perfect process by any means. But compared to the alternative where you don't have any formal input into your wages and working conditions and benefits, the ability to have folks. Uh, you know, to have input into folks negotiating and then the ability to vote on that agreement up or down. I think that is just a, you know, a, a taste of democracy in the workplace mm -hmm. that really is something that all workers should have the opportunity to enjoy. Um, and it's something that is a clear union advantage and union difference. Yep. Uh, and I think there are probably auto workers all over the area. Uh, including right here in North Alabama, who are seeing this and listening to this and wondering, you know, how they can get in on it. 
uh, and and how they could actually uh, you know benefit from these sort of gains as well. Yep, and it's it's absolutely within uh, uh, within the power of the workers at these non-union automakers. Uh, they absolutely can get what the UAW has won at Ford and GM uh, because you know, and this is something that uh, th- this is something that that people just don't they don't think about anymore. Um, or, or well, it had been when I was growing up. It, it kind of had been taken for granted that that plant work, manufacturing work, was a that was a career, that was a good job, uh, that was a good paying middle class job, and that is becoming less and less taken for granted. It was taken for granted because of the labor movement. The manufacturing jobs, production jobs, were not always good career middle class jobs absolutely they not. were uh in fact some of the worst most transient employment temporary work bottom of the barrel jobs that you could get before the unions came in and transformed them into real good paying jobs that could sustain a family and the reason that that is less and less being taken for granted is because the uh, corporations that have a high union density have been fighting their unions for the past four or five decades and uh, really taking back a lot of the things that unions have won. And there have been a lot of foreign non-union manufacturing companies come into the United States and have been fighting unions tooth and nail since they got here uh, so that they could continue a bottom of the barrel employment approach. And so if we want to see manufacturing jobs being able to be taken for granted as a good paying, uh, good paying occupation again, then we're going to have to see a resurgence of union unionization in the manufacturing sector. Uh, and the hope is and I think there's a reasonable expectation that that's going to be led by the UAW. Uh, Sean Fain has said in a in one of his live streams that um, that 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 is his plan. That you know we're going to win rec- record contracts at the big three. We are going to organize in non-union automakers uh, like we never have before. And so uh, that's that's been explicitly laid out by the union as a strategy. And um and, and so. There is every reason to expect that um, that that's what's going to happen. And uh, there's every reason to believe uh, there's every reason to know for a fact that workers have the capability to turn this job, turn this profession into a good paying middle class profession again, uh, because it used to be. And it can be again. Um, obviously, there's going to need to be a, some attention paid to the law, uh, to the ability of companies to outsource and import goods made on bottom of the, made by you know bottom of the barrel, uh, race to the bottom, uh, exploitative conditions. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can that that can be done immediately to make these jobs better. UAW is uh, they have announced the largest organizing drive in modern history. And uh, Barry Eidlin mentioned on Twitter that um, the, uh, and, and Barry Eidlin is a um, historian and, and a former union organizer. He mentioned that given the location of many of these audio auto plants being organized, this is also the most serious effort to organize the U.S. South 
since the CIO's Operation Dixie in 1940. Dang. So this is a uh, um, this is a huge, huge deal. Enormous ramifications for um, for the South, for the auto industry, and um, and and you know another reason that that it's important is that. Um, you know, despite all of the kind of popular understanding about manufacturing being outsourced and there's no manufacturing in the United States anymore, manufacturing still contributed 11% of the value added to the GDP in 2022 as compared to 8.5% for education, healthcare, and social assistance. So still a very big part of the economy. Um, any path to labor union power in the United States is going to have to come from uh, going to have to go through the manufacturing sector and through the U.S. South because uh, the U.S. South has been the Achilles heel of the labor movement for ages. Um, politicians have constantly uh, been using us, working people in the South, to undercut working people um, in other parts of the, of the United States and exploiting us and squeezing more profits out of us. And so uh, the UAW is making a big bet on uh, workers in the South and across the country saying, uh, you know, enough is enough, and uh, we're going to take more of the value that we're creating. So let's listen to this announcement that they put up last week. If you're an auto worker in this country, it's time to stand up. Everywhere you look in the auto industry, corporate profits are soaring and workers' wages are falling behind. We've shown the world that this industry is harming workers and consumers to the benefit of company executives and the rich. And it's time that the working class did something about it. But it's not just the big three. It's across the auto industry. CEOs are raking in billions while auto workers' real wages are falling. Car prices are through the roof, but workers can't afford to buy the vehicles they make. Wall Street is making a killing, but our communities are being left behind. Tesla is set to announce their third quarter results, but that they still aim to keep annual target deliveries of 1.8 million vehicles for the full year. Rivian boosting its full year production. It's a company also second quarter revenue coming in better than the street was looking for. But what about the other automakers? Let's talk about Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Nissan, Subaru, and Mazda. The Japanese and Korean six made nearly twice as much as the big three in the past decade. A whopping $470 billion in profits, a half a trillion dollars, with over 40% of their revenue coming from their North American operations. Don't auto workers at Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Nissan, Subaru, and Mazda deserve a record cut of those record profits? And how about the German three, Volkswagen, BMW, and Mercedes? They've made almost the same as the Japanese and Korean companies. $460 billion in the past 10 years. Do Volkswagen, BMW, and Mercedes workers not deserve their fair share of this booming auto industry? Big three auto workers at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis just won big raises, more job security, and cost of living adjustments for one simple reason, they're organized. Without a deal, automakers went on strike at midnight. With targeted strikes at three facilities, a Ford plant in Michigan, a GM plant in Missouri, and an Ohio plant for Chrysler owner Stellantis. The UAW was underestimated the whole way because when the game was over, it, it was just a real beatdown. The workers 
workers win. To all the auto workers out there working without the benefits of a union, now it's your turn. Since we began our stand-up strike, the response from auto workers at non-union companies has been overwhelming. Workers across the country, from the West to the Midwest, and especially in the South, are reaching out to join our movement and to join the UAW. So go to uaw.org slash join. The money is there, the time is right, and the answer is simple. You don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. You don't have to worry about how you're gonna pay your rent or feed your family while the company makes billions. A better life is out there. It starts with you, UAW. All right, so there it is, folks. UAW.org slash join is uh, where... And, and so with that announcement, they have dropped cards in every single non-union auto plant in the country, more or less. Um, and so if you are a non-union automaker anywhere, you can go to uaw.org slash join. And what comes up is a list of 13 non-union automakers. That Those are the uh, non-union automakers that they are, um, that they are uh, targeting. And so you scroll down, uh, it's like an alphabetical order looks like, no, not quite alphabetical order, um, but scroll down, find the company that you work for, and you can st uh, stand up and sign your union card. And at, in each section where it has cards for each non-union auto company, it gives you a breakdown of uh, some important statistics and stuff. And, you know, so relevant for, for Huntsville, where we have a Toyota Mazda plant, Toyota in the last 10 years has made a quarter trillion dollars in profits over the past decade. $250 billion in profit, not revenue, profit. Profits are up 30%. CEO pay is up 100%. 25%. Meanwhile, Toyota has just offered a 9% raise to convince Toyota workers not to organize. So the UAW says it's time for Toyota workers to stand up and fight for more. And it's the literal, the first one. So if you're in Huntsville, uaw.org slash join. That's the first company on the list. You can sign your card, um, and that says, you know, you want the UAW to be your union, and it'll give your information to the UAW. They'll be able to reach out to you for more. Um, but, yeah, uh, uh, really, really, um, really important stuff, and I have been heartened by um, folks in the area saying that they were going to send this um, – they were going to send this uh, uh, this announcement to people that they knew that worked at, at Toyota here in Huntsville. And uh, the reply came back from this person, oh, yeah, I've already signed my union card. <laughs> and so, nice. have, uh, so have all of my other coworkers. So, uh, so yeah, we're way ahead of you, buddy. We've, we've already signed cards. So, um, yeah, I mean, a hugely consequential announcement. Obviously, this is going to be good for Toyota workers here in the area and non-union auto workers across the country. And um, if you're a Toyota worker, if you're a Toyota worker here in Huntsville, you're listening to the program, I would love to hear from you. 844-899-8857 is the phone number. And if you call in, 
also sent in you're a Toyota worker also send us a text message saying hey this is my phone number I'm a Toyota worker here in Huntsville and I want to talk um that way we can uh, uh we can make sure to get to you cuz sometimes we don't have time for calls but uh but we would uh, we would uh, there's there there are other times where we want to make sure that we're able to get to certain certain people or, or certain groups of people uh that that are relevant um that we think that our audience would would like to hear from so Toyota workers here in Huntsville 844-899-8857 is the phone number 844-899-TVLR but um one thing that a lot of folks will notice about this campaign is that it's a lot different from kind of the the standard operating procedure over the last 10, 20, 30 years of union campaigns, which is slow, methodical, don't go public until you've hit like 60, 70% of people in the plant already signed cards because you don't want to draw attention to yourself before your organizing committee is ready and has inoculated a bunch of people. And this organizing campaign is is not that, right? They have just announced to every non-union automaker in the country, we are coming for you. We're coming from you. We're coming for you, and we're not hiding it. Um, we want your workers to sign cards today. That's what uh that's what we're looking for. And so uh uh the reason for that, and Barry Idlin has a great Twitter thread on this. Um, really kind of laying it out in, in a very eloquent manner. The central hypothesis, and this is Barry talking, it, which is now going to be tested in practice, is that workers across the auto industry have been galvanized by the UAW's stand-up strike at the Big Three and are now ready to organize. So rather than go about this, the kind of traditional, slow, methodical, one plant at a time in secret, patiently building up a campaign there, the union sees its job today as amplifying a wave that is already in motion. That means broadcasting the message that the union is ready to fight and inviting non-union auto workers across the country to join them. And so, you know, that's the gamble that they're taking, and we're going to see if it's going to pay off. I'm very hopeful that it will pay off. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm very hopeful that it will. Um, and so we'll, we'll obviously see. Hey, five seconds. Just wanted to say that this is only possible because of our donors. If you want to see more of this, then consider donating yourself at tvlr.fm slash donate. Luis Leon, friend of the show, staff writer for Labor Notes. He, um, I think, uh, undoubtedly, it's just, I don't, I don't, it's so good. I don't think it's really debatable that Luis wrote the definitive article on the announcement. So you can read his article at labornotes.org. The title of the article is Auto Workers Direct Momentum Toward Organizing Plants Across the U.S. by Luis Felice Leon. He, uh, it's a, and, and the reason that it's a definitive, the definitive article in my mind is that no other article that I've read includes so many voices of non-union auto workers um, there's just no other article out there that 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 you will hear from from as many non-union auto workers. It's really amazing the work that Luis has been able to put in and the information and the testimony that he's been able to put in this article. It's really great. And so I'm going to read a little bit from it. Um, he says that at Rivian's electric plant in Bloomington, Illinois. Oh, and 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 before we get to those testimonies. I want to highlight that, that there's already movement, right? There's already campaigns catching fire even before the announcement was made official. 
So at Rivian's electric plant in Bloomington, Illinois, workers have already built an organizing committee and surveyed a thousand of their co-workers on major job improvements and run petitions demanding longer breaks. There are about 5,000 workers at this plant. And uh, local news in Kentucky have reported that according to the union, one of the strongest campaigns in the country is at Toyota's Georgetown, Kentucky Assembly Complex, where 7,800 workers uh, make the company's iconic Camry and highly profitable RAV4 and Lexus ES. Um, so, uh, uh, so lots of, um, I mean, there, there's there's lots of movement already, and the announcement was just made official. And so, the plan is, according to Luis in Labor Notes, officially, once 30% of workers at any given plant have signed union cars. Workers there will go public with their campaign, right? So the the broad campaign is public, but at each plant, once 30% have signed cards, then that committee is going to go public, say, hey, we're public here. We've got a campaign here and we're, we're making moves. And some plants have already met that threshold, according to the UAW. Um, and so we can, we could potentially, um, uh, uh, um, induce that, the um that the Tesla Fremont California plant has already met that mark because they have gone public and said there's an organizing committee here we're forming a union um and that would be huge because that plant employs 20,000 people so if they've already got 30% of the card signed at that plant that is enormous at the 50% mark workers are going to rally their coworkers families and neighbors and community leaders and then as soon as 70% of the workers at a given car, at a given plant sign cards and have a committee made up of workers from every shift and job classification they will demand voluntary recognition of their union and if the company refuses the workers will file for an election with the National Labor Relations Board so that's kind of um evidence that it's already taken off um and some of the plan going forward and now we'll get to some of the worker testimony um, that, that is so, so important when looking at this campaign. So at Rivian, Williams said, uh, this is a, a Rivian worker in, in Illinois, R uh, Williams said that workers' main workplace concerns revolve around safety and time off. Injuries include a crushed hand, a broken foot, a sliced ear, and broken ribs, according to complaints filed with OSHA. Workers attribute these injuries to the breakneck pace of production, and there's worse to come. Just this month, the company raised its production forecast for the full year by 2,000 vehicles to 54,000 units. In 2022, workers often put in 12-hour days, seven days a week. But Williams said the company changed its schedule to 12-hour shifts, four days a week, in anticipation of Illinois' one-day rest in seven act, where an employee is entitled to at least one day off in any consecutive seven-day period. That law went into effect January 2023. So that's, you know. So we're back to fighting some, for uh, a weekend right. for these guys. Yeah. So uh, I mean, that's that's a really and and that shows the importance of having you know um, a legislature that that doesn't hate you and that doesn't want you uh, ground into powder like so many Republicans do. So, um, Rivian has found other ways to monopolize workers' time, including reducing their sick hours from eighty per year, eighty sick hours a year, which is like. <laughs> Two weeks, like on a twelve-hour okay. shift. Did they count the whole twelve? Yeah, like, what's going on? I mean, on that's there? crazy. You get eighty hours. So that's even if you, if you just get, if you get a full forty-hour work week there, you get max two weeks off. If they count the twelve hours, you know, you were scheduled for a twelve-hour <laughs> shift, and then you the you know that eighty hours is going to run out really quick, right? Okay, so um, 
they cut that in half to 40 hours a year in January 2023. That's insane. Meanwhile, salaried employees have unlimited paid vacations, according to a screenshot shared with Labor Notes. Workers have also filed complaints with OSHA over lack of fire exits. Insane. At Hyundai in Montgomery, Alabama, a 12-year team member, Gilbert Brooks, has had an or- has had organizing a union on his mind since he was hired. He had been a member of the Steelworkers for 11 years at the Goodyear Tire Factory in Anniston. And at Hyundai, 3,500 hourly, temporary, and contract employees assemble the Santa Fe, Tucson, and Santa Cruz, the Genesis GV70, and the Electrified GV70. We build 1,500 cars a day and 500 cars a, sh- cars a shift. That's pretty crazy. When measured by the speed of cars produced, this is the second most productive plant in the world. That high productivity, he says, should be rewarded with higher wages. Absolutely. He earns 28 an hour, which will go up to 30 an hour in January after the promised wage hike. Wage hike. That's after 11 years at the company, right? The company is also offering a $4,000 bonus. New hires start at around $19 an hour. That is not much. Over the past three years, Hyundai's profits have soared 75% while its vehicle prices rose 32%. We are underpaid and overworked, Brooks said. His point of comparison is what his ex-wife will earn at GM's Spring Hill plant in Tennessee. She'll go from $25 an hour to $35 an hour right away under the new UAW contract at GM. But the main sticking points are safety and respect on the job. He said the company forces workers to do jobs that really require two people and changes work rules on a whim. And the result is injuries. Um, so he talks about some of the injuries that he's had and how at in 2014, when they first tried to unionize this plant, the company didn't even offer light duty for injured workers. <laughs> but once word spread around the plant that a unionization campaign was afoot, Hyundai used a mix of carrots and six to beat back the union drive, including offering light duty and bonuses. I mean, that's offering light duty is such a like, I mean, that's actually law. Like, that's a reasonable accommodation. You have to do that. And so the fact that they weren't doing that is pretty bonkers. Um, hmm. Love to move them goalposts yeah, really, a little bit really, further. Yeah, just so gross. Uh, there's t- testimony from uh, Mercedes Benz in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, um, talking about how Alabama gave $300 million in tax breaks to Mercedes Benz. Um, and that, uh, quoting from a New York Times article, saying that that is 18 times what Tennessee paid for a Nissan plant in 1980. This was in 1996. We gave them $300 million in 1996. That's 18 times what Tennessee paid for a Nissan plant in 1980, more than seven times what Tennessee paid for a General Motors Saturn plant in 1985, four times what Kentucky paid for a Toyota plant in 1985, and three times what South Carolina paid for a BMW plant in 1992. Really crazy, crazy stuff. And so um, I love seeing those workers' testimony from Luis's article, really important. And um, the uh, uh, so this is, this is really a, um, you know, really a big deal. Hopefully, um, you know, this this may be kind of the signal that the fortress unionism, as uh, mm-hmm. Yeselson uh, coined it, is coming to an end and the time is is to come out of our, our fortress. And his thesis in, in the essay, Fortress Unionism, was basically at the time, like a decade or two ago, um, you know, look, we're in a period where we can't organize on a mass scale. The momentum, the material conditions are just not there. 
And so the job of the labor movement is to do fortress unionism, is to huddle inside our castles, protect it at all costs, do everything we can to protect the gains that we've made, and be ready for when workers say they want to organize. And so um, that's kind of what unions ended up doing over the last 30 years. And oh, and and we've talked to Chris Boehner about how... Um, there has the, the, we are the most wealthy labor movement in the history of the world. We have more money at our disposal than any other labor movement in the history of the world. And so if we want to take fortress unionism seriously, it's like, well, this is the time to come out of the fortress, I think, and make an attack. So uaw.org slash join if you're a non-union non auto worker. uaw.org slash join. Really big stuff here. <laughs>